Guys, um, what I have for you, as, as I mentioned in the email, is a little five-week, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, uh, we'll call it a series on, on the doctrine of assurance, on the, on the issue of assurance. Um, I know you won't believe me when I say, but uh, getting all of this information into five weeks is uh, somewhat of a Herculean assignment. Um, so a lot of what I will do is just give you a principle and then state some texts. You'll need to write them down and go look at them at your, at your leisure. I cannot go over all the texts that, that are in my notes tonight. Um, I guarantee you this is far more than the 35 minutes that is allotted to me. So um, just know that I'm gonna, I'll mention a thing or two, but what I'm, what I'm hoping is that um, your souls will be refreshed and you'll find um, something to hang on to. Guys, which brings me really to my, um, my, my opening point, and I want to give you um, my reasons for doing this, my reasons for um, um, developing this little five-week thing on assurance. First of all, my, my first motive is I want to try to respond, I'm trying to respond to the uh, numerous questions that come from dear believers who, who long to know this assurance, sometimes do have it, sometimes don't, um, but are interested in the subject of assurance. So, that's the first motive. I'm, I'm responding to some questions. But secondly, or secondly, uh, the second motive is the great advantage uh, of having assurance. Um, guys, there are advantages to having a knowledge of your own safety. For instance, um, the, the people with assurance are more, far more likely to, to not faint in the hour of their own trial. And there, there will certainly be um, trial. Uh, assurance kind of becomes your ark. Um, like Noah, who, um, who, who was sitting serenely in the ark, in the midst of um, global upheaval. Um, assurance becomes that for us. It becomes that, yes, these things are bad, but my soul is safe. So that's, that's, that's one of the, the advantages. I would suggest to you that um, having assurance makes you more fruitful, makes you more fruitful as a believer. And, and let, let me, I've, I've used this illustration before, um, but um, to, to illustrate my point, let's imagine that uh, you and I are brothers and um, our father died and he left us both uh, 10 acres of land and they're identical. Um, same, same number of trees, same number, I mean, identical pieces of land, side by side, 10 acres. You um, are not quite sure that that 10 acres belongs to you. And so you spend all of your time down in the, uh, the, the title office and the deed office with the attorneys trying to make sure that this 10 acres is really yours. I, on the other hand, am confident that this is mine. And so I spend my time um, plowing and digging and planting and harvesting, et cetera, et cetera. So at, the, at, at harvest time, I've got a whole lot more fruit because I was certain that this was mine. I'm saying to you that one of the advantages of having assurance is that it makes you more fruitful. Um, if you are um, often in periods of having to wrestle around with your own safety, 
it, it, um, it mutes your effectiveness and your, and your productivity as a believer. And the, the other advantage that I would suggest to you guys um, is that I would, I, would, I would suggest to you that assurance is a real motivator to a holy life. You know the, the statement that's found in the book of Nehemiah that says the joy of the Lord is my strength. Well, if there's a certain joy in the Lord that you have because you know that, that you are safe, it, it's, um, it becomes that motivator to live a more holy life. So what I'm saying is um, one of my motives for doing this is the great advantages for Christians to have assurance in the area of their fruitfulness, in the area of their own peace, in the area of their own um, uh, living of a holy life. Here's my, um, here's my third motive for developing this little five-week ditty thing is that I believe that so few of you have it. Um, I've, I've told you the story about the staff. We got together, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll compact the story or compress the story, but we came to the conclusion that 85% of our people struggle with the issue of assurance. 85%. And so because I... I, I um, I think that's just tragic. I think most, so many Christians live between somewhere between fear and hope. They're, um, they're somewhat suspended between heaven and hell, never really knowing that, that uh, all is well with their souls. I want you to know, my dear brother and sister in Christ, your peace is very dear to me. I want you to have this, but I'm not, the, I'm not, I'm not who matters. Um, I'm going to close by showing you that God wants you to have it too. But those are my motives. My motives are, number one, to respond to questions. Number two, the great advantages of, of living with assurance or having assurance. And then thirdly, I, I believe that so few of you really enjoy the kind of assurance that is, um, that is rightfully yours, that is um, rightfully possible to the, to the Christian. So that's why we're doing this. Um, oh, oh, there is one other, one other, one other motive, but it, it's, it's somewhat negative. Um, because of the existence of false assurance. Um, guys, uh, you do know there are statements throughout the scriptures like, um, in the book of Jeremiah, where it talks about the prophets saying that they cry peace, peace, but there is no peace. You come to the New Testament and Jesus says, many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? But I will say to them, I never knew you. There are people who have assurance who don't have any right to it. And then there are bucket loads of people who have a right to it, but don't have it. So I'm trying to address both of those things. People who wrongfully have assurance and people who rightfully could, but don't. So those are, those are the things that bring me to this little five-part series. Let me define it for you. That's the second point, just to define assurance. Um, um, here's, here's where much of the problem lies. The, the, the definition of assurance is, is a subjective sense. That's where the problems rise. It's a subjective sense. 
And because it's subjective, um, it creates all this room for um, discussion. But it's a subjective sense that is rooted in objective promise. It's a legitimate subjective because it is tied to a legitimate objective. Those objective promises that are made to me, but assurance is a subjective sense rooted in objective promise of a certainty that I am his and he is mine. That's what it is. Now, guys, um, it is one thing for me to believe. It's another thing for me to believe that I do believe. It is, it is one thing for me to have faith. And it's another thing for me to know that I have faith. And that's what we're after. You see, it's, it's, it's one thing for me to have grace. It's quite another thing for me to be able to see that grace in me. And that's what assurance is. Not only having faith, but knowing that I do have faith. Not only, knowing, not only believing, but knowing that I do believe. Not only having experienced grace, but having, having been able to see that grace um, present in me. That's what we're after, ladies and gentlemen. That's the, that's the issues that are, um, that are at stake here in this discussion of, um, of assurance. Now, here's something that we've got to get square at the very beginning. In theological circles, uh, the one thing that is said very often is that assurance is not of the, I think that's a Latin term, and you can see where the English word, um, assurance is not of the essence of a Christian. You need to understand what what I mean when I say that. Assurance is not of the essence. It is required for the well-being of a Christian, which is called bine esse. It is required for the well-being of a Christian, but not for the being of a Christian. Assurance does not belong to the essence of the Christian gospel. Just because you do not have assurance does not mean that you're not a Christian. It means that you're, it's sad, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you are not a Christian because you struggle with assurance. Because assurance does not belong to the essay, to the essence of the Christian message of the Christian gospel. Um, for instance, I, and, and, and there's a few of these texts that I really want you to see. Uh, so if you if you want to follow me around, um, I'm in the I'm in the book of Isaiah chapter 50. Um, this is just one of the my favorite statements by the prophet Isaiah. He says in 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 Isaiah chapter 50 verse 10, he says. Who among you fears the Lord? Anybody here? 
Who obeys the voice of his servant? Anybody here? Notice what it says next. Who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. Do you see what's being described here? You've got a man who (coughs) fears the Lord, obeys the voice of the Lord, but is walking in darkness and has no light. Um, There's no sense of substance. And yet, in reality, he is the real thing. But he has no sense that he's the real thing. Guys, um, here's one that you'll have to take down. No, 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 I've got to read you some of this. This is Psalm 77. This is written by a guy by the name of Asaph. And I'm not going to read you all of it, but just... um, um, listen to this. I cried out to my God, I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he heard, he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. Not comforted. I remembered God and I was troubled. I complained, and my spirit was overwhelmed. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. Who wrote that? Asaph wrote that. The real thing. But there was a period in his life that every time he remembered God, his soul was troubled. Such that you hold, he couldn't sleep at night. Have you, gotten that, have you gotten that bad yet? Let me say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I have. Not presently, but I have been in that situation. Um, or how about Psalm 88? Psalm 88, ladies and gentlemen, is the only psalm in the whole psalmody of 150 psalms that you will find absolutely no hope. No hope at all. In fact, Psalm, Psalm 88 uh, ends with the word darkness. Look at the last verse. Loved one and friend you have put far from me and my acquaintances into darkness. Here's a man. His name is Heman. Heman is um, in a period in his life where everything is Darkness. Now, those periods that these men experienced are experiences being experienced by the real thing. Because, you see, assurance is not of the essence. It's of the bene essence, the well-being, but not of the being. So, Just because you don't have assurance, I'm I'm hoping by the time we're finished you will, but even though you may have struggled with the issue over over the years, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're not a believer. Those are two fine believers, and Isaiah the third, fine believers, who were in periods where all they could experience was darkness. Now, here's my third point for the night. I want to give you some proofs 
that assurance is a possibility for a Christian. Now, guys, the reason I say that is because um, there are numerous places around the um, around Christendom that would deny that assurance is even a possibility. You want an example? Roman Catholicism says that assurance is a damnable and pernicious heresy. What I'm talking to you about tonight, Rome calls a damnable and pernicious heresy. Now, so, I want to spend some time showing you (coughs) that assurance is a possibility for a believer. For instance, go to Romans chapter 8. I can't read all this, but I'll try to read some of it. Um, Romans chapter 8. How about this? For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing should be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does that sound like? What does that sound like that Paul believes? Not just for himself. He says, uh, shall be able to separate us from the love of God. His assurance was not built on some kind of um, second blessing experience. Gang, if you've come out of a neo-Pentecostal world, you know of that to which I refer. That assurance is only attainable to those who have experienced the second blessing. That second blessing being made uh, observable by, of course, speaking in tongues. Paul is not rooting his assurance in some kind of his second blessing experience. His assurance is rooted in the implications of gospel truths taking the gospel for what it says, the implications of that are that a believer can have assurance. Let me give you an example. Um, For I am confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun this good work will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, ladies and gentlemen, there's an assertion it's found in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. What are the implications of that assertion? I am confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun the good work in me will perfect it. Yesterday I met with a man um, who is oh so impressive, um, Ronnie Stevens. Ronnie Stevens who gets me in all kinds of trouble. Um, but um, he's gotten me in some more. Um, but... Um, he introduced me to a guy who was a, a Persian, I mean, an Iranian refugee. And um, um, he fled because he was about to be murdered. His father was murdered. He fled to Greece. 
ran into some Canadian missionaries, becomes a Christian in Greece. Try to make this short, but he's really, he's really a, a clear thinking evangelical and even reformed in his theology, but just a real clear-headed um, guy. And so we started talking about Islam. Actually, I didn't even raise this. Maybe I did. But he said, um, let me tell you one of the reasons that I don't like Islam. He says, because you can never have any sense of your own assurance. And I said, really? He said, I said, I thought you could die in jihad and you were assured of your place in glory with along with the 72 virgins. He said, yes, that's, that's partially true. But if your bad deeds have outweighed your good deeds, you're going to hell. That was, Jonathan, did he not say that? Um, this is a, a converted Iranian Muslim. Now, guys, um, the implications of the gospel are the thing in which Paul roots his certainty. And that's what we've got to talk about in five weeks, but we will. Um, Tell me, ladies and gentlemen, what comfort uh, can a Christian have without assurance? If you take this stuff as seriously as so many of you do, and then you don't think that you're a part of it? What kind of enjoyment could you possibly have? Well, I know that to be true. I know there's a heaven. I know there's a hell. And those who are not saved are going to go there. And I might not be one of them. What kind of dread must you live with? Well, if you're in Islam or Roman Catholicism, you're going to live with the rest of your life. Because the implications of their gospel will not take you there. The implications of the New Testament Pauline gospel will indeed take you there. And that's why Paul says it's a possibility. Let me show you. Let me show you another place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. All I'm trying to do is show you the existence of the possibility. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, you know, all right, I tell, you, I, tell me, that our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed. What's he talking about right there? The body. That's exactly what he's talking about. You know, we know this. If we die, we have a building from God. Um, A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly, desiring to be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. Notice, we know that if this one is destroyed, I got another one. I got another one. Um, he doesn't say, we feel very confident, we're pretty sure, uh, we certainly hope that it's true. We know, says Paul, that if we die, we have a building that's not made with hands. 
All I'm saying to you, ladies and gentlemen, is that this possibility of assurance is not confined to Paul. It's not confined to some kind of spiritual elite. It's available for all of us. Let's look at it just a couple of more. While you're there, just look over at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1.27 says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of his mystery among the Gentiles. Now, who's the them of verse 27? Look at verse 26 or the last. But now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery. To those saints, God has willed to make known what is the glory of the riches of, that, that are ours. Um, just a couple of quick statements in the, in the book of Psalms, which where this is, the Psalms are riddled with this, this wonderful truth. This is in Psalm 119, verse 94. He says, um, David says, I am yours. That's enough. I am yours. Yeah, you are. You are, David. Um, in Psalm 73, uh, Psalm 73, verse 25, you find this. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those are statements written by men who knew the beauty of having assurance. Assurance is not only available to a certain elite, it's made available to all of us. Now, I've got to hurry. But the next point that I would make is God has promised to give you this. He says in Psalm 84, verse 11, the statement is this, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Ladies and gentlemen, I would say to you, one of the best of the good things is a certainty that my soul is safe. You know, you've heard the statement, you're not ready to die until you're, I mean, you're not ready to live until you're ready to die. If you do not have assurance, you are not ready to die in your own mind. Because you're wondering, oh no, I don't know what's going to happen to me. (laughs) And thus, you're not ready to live. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. He's promised to give it to you. Let me show you, uh, oh, this is a great statement. In the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 34. Last two verses of Ezekiel 34 says this, verse 30 and 31. Thus they shall know that I, the Lord their God, am with them. And they, the house of Israel, are my people, says the Lord. You are my flock, the flock of my pasture. You are men and I am your God, says the Lord Lord God. All I'm saying is, ladies and gentlemen, this thing that I want you to have, Contra Rome is available to you. It's a possibility for us. 
and I hope you've got it. Now, here's my last point for the night. The Holy Spirit of God exhorts you to get it. If you do not have it, in one sense, you are grieving the Holy Spirit. Let me show you. Go to 2 Peter chapter 2. Excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1, verse 10. What a statement. You understand what I'm saying? I'm saying the Holy Spirit of God exhorts you. It's a possibility, not just for a few, but for everybody who walks uprightly, everybody belongs, it's, it's available to all of us. And then the Holy Spirit exhorts you. You get this. He says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, guys, t- take a look at these words. Be even more diligent. I think the King James says, give diligent, give diligence. What does that imply to you? When, when God says, through the, penmanship of the <coughs> through the penmanship of Peter and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, when he says, Here's something I want you to do. I want you to be diligent to make your calling and your election sure. Because I know that if you do, you'll never stumble. When in possession of something as prized as my own eternal security. Um, The whole idea of giving diligence or being diligent suggests, I think, several things. It suggests a determination. So, ladies and gentlemen, here's the first thing that you got if you came here tonight without it. You got to leave here tonight determined to get it. Now, I do believe these four weeks will help you, but the the first decision that you make is that I'm not going to live like this anymore. I am going to give diligence. I am going to be ever more diligent to be sure about this calling and election. I'm going to be sure about it. Um, I would say that the whole idea of giving diligence suggests speed. Haste, that is, do it now. Don't put this off. Um, We're going to do it now. And guys, um, there's got to be, on the part of all of God's people, a seriousness of our intention about our pursuit of this prized possession of knowing that what, what the Father said is mine is really mine. I'm, I'm not going to spend my time. I'm going to settle this. 
and I'm going to settle it soon, with haste, with serious intention, with diligence. I'm determined to enjoy what, what God has made available to me. Um, one, other, one other text I want you to see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. You know this one too. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, reads like this. Examine yourselves as to whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Gang, this is not an invitation. It is a command. Examine yourselves. Test yourselves. To see whether you be in the faith. Um, As to whether you are in the faith. Do you not know yourselves? Are you uncertain about your relationship to this Jesus Christ? Then, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible exhorts you. It exhorts you in one place and commands you in another. It commands you here. It exhorts you in in 2 Peter 1. The sum total is, this is a serious um, pursuit that I'm going to be on. And when I'm done, I'm going to end up with a sense of my own safety. And if you get there, the text says, you will never never stumble. Knowing that my soul is safe is the thing that will give rise to this whole eagerness and interest in holy living, my whole sense of joy as a Christian, my whole sense of productivity as being one who says he names the name of Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, that assurance that we're exhorted to get is rooted in objective gospel truths. And we're going to go over them in fine detail. But the first thing that you have got to decide is that you're not going to live like this anymore. I'm not going to live without it. It's a possibility for the believer. I'm exhorted to have it uh, by the New Testament. And so, I am determined to give diligence to my um, pursuit of and possession of assurance. We'll stop there and start looking at some of those implications of gospel truths next week. Hey, before I pray, um, let me pray first. Our Father, oh, that your people, all of them, all of these dear people in this room, might they be able to enjoy the thing that you have made available You have promised us that you will withhold no good thing from them who walk uprightly. And there's so many people 
in this room who do so eagerly want to walk uprightly. And to them, O oh God, grant them, grant them this, this sense, a sense that is rooted in your promises that all is safe, all is well with their souls. It will make a significant difference for all of us. Do that, Father. And we ask you to do it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen.